Yeah. All right, here we go. How's your day? Long, man. <laughs> yesterday seemed long. Yeah, today's a little bit longer. Because yesterday, by the time I finished most of the interviews, I could at least go back and do what I had to do for CBC. Oh, you still uh, have a job. I forgot. Yeah, it's not even a job. It's, <laughs> it's, even, it's, it's even more different than that, right? When you're like a full-time self-employed uh, yeah. writer, self-employed yeah. storyteller, yeah. you know, you got to get these paydays wherever they are. So sometimes it's banging something out on deadline for CBC. Sometimes it's flying to Montreal to uh, do broadcast, like a boxing broadcast. Yeah. And right now it's hustling this book, which is, uh, you know, there are a lot of parallels between the book industry and the publishing and the, and the boxing industry. Publishing and boxing similarities. They're very much the same. Talk to me. How does that happen? Or what's, so the, what writer, are the similarities? i put it to you like this. The writer is the writer's like the boxer. Okay. The, the editor is like the trainer. Okay, right? yeah. Yeah. The agent is like your manager. They go get the best deal for you. Okay. And then the publisher is like the promoter. They're the one it's their job to put on the biggest show and make the most money they can for everyone possible. You included, but it's yeah. They're putting on the show. Right? And then part of selling a book is very much like selling like as a writer, you know, you come up through the uh ranks, you write for the newspapers and people enjoy reading you. Yeah. They're not paying to read you specifically. They're paying for the newspaper or for sure. the magazine which is very much like boxing like you're when you're on espn yeah you know, when you're on tsn they're not paying to watch my fight specifically but they pay for cable yeah they pay for a package that includes what i'm doing but then when you write a book that's like pay-per-view so you've graduated yeah. but it's you, it's really on you to also go out and promote so you have a promoter but it the, the promoter can only promote as much as you do yeah so if you got to get out here and hustle if you're not you willing to, yeah, yeah, you got to run around, drive to the TV stations. Yes, yeah. yeah, do all the interviews. Like I don't, I don't turn down interviews generally. Yeah, unless it's somebody that I just know already is abhorrent. Oh boy, you know, like like if Fox News calls me and says, "Hey, let's do an interview," I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to You got to get out there and hustle this thing, man. You got to sell the product for sure, for sure. Uh, Morgan Campbell is my guest. My fighting family. That's a big book. Yeah, it's 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 bigger than I thought it would be when I sat down to write it. Yeah, and and it's uh, it's not even your whole, it's not your whole life. Not because there's not enough room, but like you started off way back. Uh, yes. You know, like your great. Did you start off with your great grandfather? Sort of. Yeah. Like that. That that epi- The prologue covers a lot of ground, but just. Yeah, because I had to signal to the reader who we were. There was a you built a foundation. Yeah, like it took a while before. Hi, my name is Morgan, and I'm in grade. Like <laughs> it took a while, and I'm like, okay, this is a this is a good foundation. Was first of all, listen, congrats. Thank you on the book. Congrats on the launch. Congrats on uh, on on everything. Um, the book that is published today is this is this the book that you started writing or that you wanted to start writing did you know um, this is a story i need to tell um in that sense yes okay uh the form is a little bit different like initially i sat down to write 
a straight narrative beginning to end. Yeah. And that just broke my brain. And it occurred to me that this book would read a lot better as a memoir in essays. Mm. Um, just because it allowed me to concentrate on just a series of different events or topics in each, either, you know, each chapter, each essay either focuses on a theme yeah, or it focuses on an event, you know, and the, the themes that underpin that yeah. event or those, that series of events. And uh, so it, it allowed me a lot more creative freedom in terms of uh, taking all these details that make up the book and putting them where I needed to put them. Yeah. And so it almost didn't matter. So some of these details, it didn't matter like chronologically where they went as long That's as they right. there. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then what it turned out being what I, I appreciate about it, like what I would appreciate about it if I, as a consumer. Yeah. Is the fact that it's like an album in that it's made up of songs. So I can't remember how many chapters there are in the book, but there's, you know, 21 tracks on this album, whatever it is. But because sometimes you have a favorite album, but when you want to listen to the album, you don't want to go back and listen to the whole album every time. Yeah. You just want to go listen to a couple songs. So this is this book, like, you don't have to finish it and just put it away forever. Um, and they, or commit to rereading the whole thing. You might just want to go read a chapter. So you go back, go find it's like finding your favorite song on the album. That's the that's the song I want to hear. Press play. There you go. Yeah. So it worked out better that way. Nice. But the, but the themes are the, the the same ones I set out to explore for sure. Perfect. Listen, I, I have a, I have a question I want to ask, but I've got to preface it with a with a short story. Okay. Um. So a number of years ago, we did a family reunion out in Canmore, Alberta. Okay. We have family there from uh, England, from across Canada. Uh, and we got together for my uncle's, I want to say, 80th birthday. Mm -hmm. And my cousins knew that, you know, that I podcast. So they said, hey, can you interview our dad? So I said, yeah, I'd love to. So anyways, I start off interviewing him. And then it turned into a project. And I said, I'd love to interview all of my dad's family, mm -hmm. all the brothers, all the sisters, um, they're, uh, some of them are refugees from Uganda. So that's sort of where mm -hmm. our family was back in the, well, they, they were born there. So, but you know, we left in the early seventies Yep. and I interviewed this one uncle of mine who has since passed and it was a great, it was like, we were on for two hours recording and I was so excited to share this with everybody. Mm -hmm. And then unbeknownst to me, his two daughters are upset yeah. with the podcast. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> I didn't do the stuff. So like, why, why are you upset? And it turned out that one question that I asked them about, you know, tell me about your children. Um, he spent two minutes on and everything, you know, but he talked about everything else. Yes. You know, and, and <laughs> so it turned out, oh, my God, they're upset. Do I? And then they told him they're upset. And so he calls me. Can you take it down? Can you I'm like, oh, my God, this is like one of the best things I've done. Yeah. Um, and so I tell you the story to ask you this, because as I started reading your book mm -hmm. and I bumped into one of your uncles in the hallways as I was coming to the book launch event. Uncle Jeff or Uncle Ken? Um, he had I'll two you, hoop how, earrings. How thick was his American accent? Yeah, American accent for sure. That was, that was Uncle Ken. Uncle Ken. OK, yeah. Yeah. 
he said, yeah, he's read. He's I think he works for the TTC, maybe. Yeah, he's retired from the TTC. TTC, yeah, yeah. Um, Uncle Ken. And I asked him, are you in the book? And he said, yes. And I go, and I, I didn't mean this in a rude way or a bad way, but I said, did he talk smack about you? <laughs> meaning, meaning, did did he tell, you know, like, did he tell about you? And he goes, I mean, yeah. And I go, what did you think? And he says, well, it's all true. <laughs> so my question to you, Morgan, yeah, is because you talk a lot of, there, there's a story about your dad that I was like, oh my God, he's telling that story uh about you you know your dad is in the swimming pool with somebody yeah <laughs> yeah 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 and i'm like oh my god so i want to ask you i know you uh i know your your, your father's not around anymore yeah. um but did you have to talk with your family before you I, wrote this book well i didn't ask their permission i just told them i was writing the book okay um you know and they were supportive of the idea okay Right. Okay. And as they all read the book, we'll see how they <laughs> all right, how supportive they are of the execution. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I warned them about is the fact that it's not the book that any of the rest of them would have written. Mm. And there's so many of these things that only I experienced and a lot of these things that we all experience, but all from different points of view. And we all have different relationships with each of us has a different relationship with every other individual in the family than yeah. everyone else has with that individual. And so, you know, I just had to warn them and remind them that like some of these family fights that I touch on, some of them we go deep into and some of them we just touch on yeah. to kind of catapult us, just to catapult the story into making a bigger point about our family, specifically in families in general, and how families get yeah. along and how they don't. Yeah. And so, you know, when it's, when, it, when it's talking about your family, yeah, it can seem really big and like scandalous. But every single person I've talked to that read the book has seen a reflection or an echo of their family in these conflicts. So yes. you can't worry about like people judging you for being in a family where people fight because if you're in a family where nobody has ever fought, you're very lucky. You might be in a boring family, and that might be okay. <laughs> that you're just really fun. lucky. Like, and for me, family-wise, I'm ready for boring. I'm ready for like no more fights <laughs> because that's what I grew up with, you know. But uh, you know, you do run the risk of people. Uh, and the other thing, you know, I did some fact checking with my mom and my aunt. Okay. Um, but I didn't involve my family in the creative process. Okay. Okay. Because you know, I keep telling people this, and you re you get this reading the book. Like my family's full of really proud, sharp, smart, opinionated, stubborn people. Mm. And uh, if you get too many of them in the as collaborators, well, forget it. <laughs> in the creative process, yeah, what you're gonna what you wind up doing is having a lot of push and pull, and people kind of nudging you toward writing the story that they would have written. Yeah. I had to write the story that I was writing. Yeah, yeah. From my F point of view, and it's going to look different than it would from my mom's point of view, obviously, and then from my even from my sister's point of view. Fair enough. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. As I was reading this book, I go, "Oh man." Uh, but anyway, but you're right. Like all, like I, I used to think my family was boring, but then as I started to hear stories, I'm like, "Oh my god, we've, there's there's some right. characters in our family yes. now." <laughs> you know, there's some characters. 
Um, there, I want to ask you about two things I think you said or people said at your book launch. Okay. I wanted to ask you about. Um, I don't know if it was you or if it was uh, your uh, your editor, but someone had mentioned that your mom is the star of the book. Yeah, that was me. That uh, was you. Yeah, I'm the I'm the protagonist and the narrator, but my mom winds up being the star. Yeah. You see it sometimes in these movies where a secondary character winds up stealing the show. Yeah, so yeah. that's my mom for sure. But my mom is also like a harsh, harsh, harsh critic. So mm. my mom might read this book. This is a very real possibility. My mom reads the book. She just started. Okay. And this gives me two stars out of five. You know what I mean? Because I've given my mom like oh, yeah. really good books, like award-winning books, and she'll yeah. read it and just shrug. She's like, it's all right. <laughs> what was hilarious so cool. was you, you guys watched the uh, the Bears win the Super Bowl. Yeah. And and your mom, what did your mom say? She goes, that wasn't a shut up, but I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> That's my mom, man. That is my mom, a perfectionist in something. She wanted, and because the Bears had gone through the previous rounds of that playoffs without giving up any points. So she, yeah, she wanted another, she wanted shutout after shutout after shutout. Yeah. Um, but your mom was also important. She, she didn't reckon, but you found a book, was it by James Baldwin? Yes, The Fire Next Time. Yeah, and I mean, it, the way you describe it, I think if she pushed you to read that book, you wouldn't have read it. But it was like she teased no, you. No, at, at that point in my life, if she had pushed it on me, I would have taken it. You would have. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. yeah. But it seemed like the way she told you about the book, it was like she was teasing you. Yeah. Because she to... made it sound very exciting. Yeah. 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 So basically, uh, to get your listeners caught up, like, yeah, I'm around 15. I was just turning 15 and I... I had, you know, I decided I wanted to be a reader. I wanted to start reading books, even though I was already a reader. My parents got me into reading because, you know, they lured me with a Sports Illustrated subscription. <laughs> and as I got into reading, I was reading a lot of magazines. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I wasn't reading books, but I decided I wanted to get into reading books. And we had a copy of The Fire Next Time at the house. And so I asked my mom what it's about. And she said, yeah, it's about being black in America and how basically if white America doesn't change and, and, and cure its own racism, black people are going to wind up burning the whole country down. So, you know, to, to me, you know, as a, as a 14, 15 year old black boy who's like, listen to a lot of hip hop, listen to a lot of public enemy and even like X-Clan, if you want to get into like obscure, super pro black rappers. Like that's what I was listening to. So for her to say that to me, that sounded really exciting. Wow. And so I dove into the fire yeah. next time, you know, and as a reader and as someone that loves uh, literature and black American stories. Yeah. I have not looked back. Wow. There's another, I don't know if you were the same age uh, as, as discovering this book, but you tell the story of, your teacher, maybe it was English class, maybe it was history class, talking about uh, the movie Birth of a Nation. Yeah, so that or was a few months before. That was that was okay. second semester of grade nine when I started reading Baldwin. That was first towards the end of first semester of grade Great, 10. Man, I'm thinking about my son. He's in grade 12. Wow. Yes. Um, <laughs> so grade, grade nine. Oh, wow. Yeah, top um, 
but you sort of, you know, you're, you're, I don't know if you're known as that or you described it, but you're like, you'd rather look out the window sort of daydream. You know, you were, you talk about being a C student. Like, except in our school, except for two classrooms, you could not look out the window. Because okay. I went to I went to the Woodland School in Central Mississauga, and if okay. uh, you have any listeners that are familiar with the Woodland School, you will know that it has almost no windows. There, I, I can think of two classrooms with windows, and all the rest of them, as I said in the book, it's it just always looks like it's the same time of day, and so it's sort of like going to school inside of a casino. Because <laughs> you don't. That's true. <laughs> always, it always looks like the same time of day. That is true. There's no that very next to no natural light in that building. Yeah. As I was reading that chapter or that part of the book where you sort of raised your hand and said, yeah, it's not about the technology. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That path, that, that section there drew me back because you and I have had conversations on, Mm. on this podcast. It reminded me of some of the stuff you've talked about in your time uh, in Canada, in at the, can I say, yeah, at the Toronto Star. Yeah. Like, it, it was like, People this reminds me of some of the stuff you were talking about, <laughs> like, years ago, uh, you know, after you had left. Um, but, yeah, it's like, like, I don't know if there's a question there, Morgan, but it just sort of threw me back to to, to that conversation, to those yeah, conversations. Well, and, and, I, and I had written about that a couple times, once at the Star and once for Sway Magazine, that same. Okay. Uh, that same uh series of events in class and yeah to get your listeners caught up uh what was happening was in grade nine history our history textbook mentioned the movie birth of a nation the original birth of a nation from 1915 which was a movie based on a novel called the Klansman, which should tell you everything you need to know about what that movie's about (laughs) right not everything but it it gives you a good idea yes tells you who tells you who the the and and uh the Klansmen are the good guys in this, guys. It's not. Oh, right? boy. <laughs> and so what happens is the textbook mentions this movie and how it was really popular in Canada um, and explains that uh, it was this blockbuster movie. You know, in, it was an American movie, obviously, but a blockbuster movie in Canada uh, in large part because of the technology they used to make the film and that. You had camera angles and oh, flashbacks boy. and all of this. And this is why Canadians love the movie. Now, to the average Canadian, that explanation makes sense. You know, in our class, you know, I was the only black kid in the class. Mm. Kids, the other teacher was white. The kids were every other color but white. The history textbook did not have any pictures of black people except for one picture of Ben Johnson toward the end. Yeah. So, they, so this book clearly came out just before Ben Johnson got busted for steroids. Because if it came out after, you probably, his picture probably wouldn't have been in it. But anyway, point is, the students who are the audience for this book have no way of knowing without the book telling them what that movie was really about. And this was before YouTube. You couldn't just go search yeah. the internet and see some bootleg copy of the movie. But... The difference between me and the other kids in the class is besides the fact, in addition to the fact that I'm black, in addition to the fact that my parents are American, yeah. is that my parents also sort of cultivated and my sisters and I like this relationship with black history and black American culture. So there was always something that was real to us and concrete, not abstract, 
like it would have been if, say, we were five generations removed from the U.S. or living a long way from the U.S. You know, we lived near the border. We lived in Mississauga. So we would watch these uh, documentaries that came on uh, WNED, public, public, public yeah. broadcaster from Buffalo, and they would show like Eyes on the Prize, and our parents would say, here, y'all watching Eyes on the Prize tonight. Or they would just record them. And there was one that dealt with uh, uh, depictions in mass media of Black Americans mm. uh, and how we were depicted in the mass media, like specifically in the years sort of after World War, after, this, after the um, Civil War up to about 1920. And one of these, one of the segments of this documentary dealt specifically with Birth of a Nation. So I knew that this was a movie that portrayed the Ku Klux Klan as heroes. Because in this movie, and in the Klansman, the novel, uh, post-Bellum South, uh, post-Reconstruction, Black people now are left to their own devices. They don't have slavery to keep us civilized anymore. So we go feral, and we're just rampaging. And thanks to the brave members of the Ku Klux Klan, they come and string black people up and run us over cliffs and uh, restore the natural order of things and send a message to everyone else to, to fall in line. This is, this is the thrust of the movie. And it is lost on the kids in my class because the textbook doesn't mention it. So I said, I had to say this. Um, you know, I was like the, because I had some cultural capital, mm. I was able to like set the class straight but it did for me just expose a huge gap uh, between what we were being taught especially as black people and what it would have been useful for us to know and, and for the white kids too to understand that sure racism did not stop at the border because this is a story mm. canadians tell themselves is that americans are racist uh. and we're not but like if that was true how come canadians didn't say to dw griffith take this stupid movie back home because that's not how we get down up here, but that's not what they said. They said, bring us your movie because we want to watch it. Take our money, please, because we want to watch the Ku Klux Klan kill black people. Oh. And so, you know, how that relates bigger picture to this book is just the sense that, you know, black history important and is important and the different types of black stories we have here in Canada. There are so many of them. Yeah. Uh, and I think the stories of African-Americans who come to Canada sometimes get lost. But they, we are here. There are some of us. And so I wanted to make sure that people read this one uh, because these stories are worth telling and they're worth, worth preserving. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, second, the, the second thing that was mentioned at your book launch is that this book is a, a love letter to Black America. Yeah. Um, tell, me, tell me how. Tell me how. Yeah. How, how and why? Yeah. How and why? Yeah. Well, one, um, and I say this all the time, but I only say it because it's true. Uh, and some people are going to disagree with me about it. Mm -hmm. But if you disagree with me, you're wrong. And <laughs> I don't fight with people about this. I don't argue with people about this what I'm, and what I'm about to say is that you know black America gets a lot of flattery via imitation because imitation is a sincerest form of flattery yeah and at the yeah. same time we are constantly being told that as black Americans we have no culture no hmm. language no this no that 
mm. often being told that by people who are appropriating our culture and by people who are borrowing our culture interest-free um, the way black americans talk walk dress sing rap mm. play basketball play football um the way we cook like white people think this is this is just a buffet they can pick from different types of black people think this is a buffet they can pick from because different types of black people have no problem co-opting african-american vernacular english but if an african-american uh, uh, starts okay. talking one of their dialects they're like how dare you right and so and again it's not something i'm going to argue with anyone about somebody tells me black americans have no culture like, you keep thinking that you're wrong but i ain't i'm not fixing to argue with you about it yeah 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 um and so what i wanted to do was express some authentic love because black america does not get a lot of that what we just get is superficial imitation from people who are at the same time you know trying to tell us we have no culture like ralph wiley who was an early influence of mine had a book called why black people tend to shout and he had a chapter in that book called why black people have no culture and uh, his conclusion was black people have no culture because it is on loan permanently to the rest of the world. Oh, oh. <laughs> we create, they ah. take. So what I wanted to do was show black America, some authentic heartfelt love uh, from, you know, a member from across the border, from a member of, you know, this yeah. African-American uh, diaspora, you know, and so some of the ways I do that are just, uh, you know, portraying my family as their authentic selves. Um, you know, and I don't uh, really trying to stay true to like the language, like the way my parents spoke, especially my dad, you know, so that if you grew up around black Americans and you read this dialogue, you can hear it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some places in the book where I have to explain stuff that wouldn't need explaining for a, a black American audience. Yeah, because I am in Canada and this is being published in Canada, there are going to be some people that just need some explanation. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but um, to me, again, that was really important because Black America to, does not get enough authentic, heartfelt, genuine love. And Black Americans as a group, as a cultural force, we don't get compensated for that anywhere near in proportion to what we actually contribute yeah. to the world. And so this is at least is a right on. You know, thank you thanking black america the same way i thank my parents for making me who i am you know fair enough no that's great um i don't have too much more time with you morgan uh you you read a great passage uh at the book <laughs> launch yes. can i uh can i ask you yes not necessarily to read that passage but is there another passage uh that maybe you you, you want to read Oh, not off the top of my head, only because that one I had I had to think long and hard about. Yeah. Do you want me to read that passage again? Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, yeah, me... yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me one second. Oh, I knew I would do that. Make a big, make a big mess in my house. I, right. I, I remember I said, oh, maybe I should have prepped Morgan. But uh, you famously, is it famously, infamously played for a really bad high school yeah. football so team? <laughs> So let me set this up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot in this book about football. I was, a, I was a pretty good high school football player. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Why am I being modest? I was an all-province high school football <laughs> there player. You I go. was all-Ontario. Okay. 
got recruited by a lot of Canadian schools and a handful of American schools. But I was undersized. I'm five seven, um, and so you know I had these visions of playing at like Notre Dame or Florida State or whatever. But you know the teams that really wanted me were you know U of T, uh, uh, Acadia, you know uh, Simon Fraser schools like this, um, Western, you know. Yeah, and. Um, Going but in the high school I played at, like I played well and I got on recruiting on coaches recruiting radar because I would go to these camps in the summer. Okay. And that's where these university coaches would see me. But the teams I played on in high school were very bad. So what we had were uh, a few really good players and nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> Just people few, in uniform. <laughs> right. And so you know, our whole strategy, our hope was that like these six or seven really good guys could s- compensate for the 25 other guys who just, you know, were too small and too slow, like a really bad combination of slow and small. Mm-hmm. And so, and like, just not very well schooled either. Like it was, it was, it was rough. So we lost a lot. So what happens too is it's the first week of school. My last year of high school, the end of that first week is when my dad dies. So I take Mm. a week off of school and then I come back to school. And one of the coaches was actually mad at me for not coming to practice, even though my dad had died. And I'm like, coach, I was not at school at all. And he's like, doesn't matter, come to practice. If this was my team, you wouldn't be here. Like these are the... When I talk about how dysfunctional this team was, it was yeah. not an accident, right? <laughs> so what happens now is we get late into the season and there's only one team that we have that we can have a, 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 a dream of beating, okay? And we get late into the game and we are trailing them by four points, okay? And again, I'm coming into the season. I really just want to win one game. We haven't done it yet. You know, when I, when I go home, I still got to deal with all this family turmoil because after my dad died, like a new family feud erupted between the two sides of my family. Because this is a lot of what the book's about is that my yeah. mom's family, my dad's family don't get along. And so we get to uh, the fourth quarter against the Arendelle Raiders. And um, they're ahead of us. They're 10, they're, they have 10 points. We have six. And so... We think we have a chance to win the game. And I'm going to read to you what happens. It's going to take Alrighty. about oh, five, six minutes. It's two pages of the book. Yeah. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. Don Ballantyne took the snap and tossed me the ball. And for maybe the second time all season, the Woodlands Rams executed a play precisely as designed. A wall of red jerseys formed along the offensive line without a single green-shirted Arendelle Raider knifing into the backfield to disrupt me. No missed blocks by the little guys on the perimeter where a good cornerback would have closed in from the sideline to steer me toward his pursuing teammates. Kevin, a good friend of mine, Kevin Gregory, Kevin manhandled Arendelle's outside linebacker to give me a clean running lane, and this time I had to take it. Final quarter of the second last game of the season, facing the only beatable team left on our schedule, trailing by just four points instead of our usual 10 or 20, with only a handful of minutes remaining, I couldn't afford to seek out a big collision here. A touchdown would give us a late game lead. Our defense remained about as airtight as a screen door, 
But if the offense could pull off this one perfect play, maybe our defense could figure it out just for a series. I turned upfield and hit the afterburners. The faster I ran, the slower time seemed to unfold. I could already picture this touchdown on the highlight tape I planned to send to college coaches after the season. Only question as I sped past Arendelle's bench was whether to lead or to close with it. This run felt like vindication after a summer spent training instead of doing fun but pointless teenage stuff for investing instead of sacrificing. The week after my dad died, as the two sides of my family found new and familiar ways to feud, I would still sneak out of the house to the hill across to the hill in the park across the street and run sprints. I needed a break from the bickering, but I also wanted to sharpen my speed for moments like this when I'd hit top speed. Sorry. Uh, let me read that sentence again. I needed a break from the bickering, but I also wanted to sharpen myself for moments like this when I'd hit top speed with the Arendelle Raiders flailing in my wake, looking at the back of my jersey and the soles of my feet. When I returned to school after the funeral, I took a black marker to my white Nike football cleats. On the heel of the left shoe, I wrote PC. On the right, T-R-O-Y. Pete Campbell, they reminisce over you. I didn't cross myself after first downs or say a silent prayer every time I flattened a ball carrier. But my dad flashed across my mind as I sped down the sideline, past Arendelle's bench, where players and coaches groaned because their four-point lead only had seconds to live. Ten strides from the end zone, I thrust my left hand overhead, then pointed my index finger to the sky. It cost me a little speed, but nobody on the field had a top gear faster than mine. I could have moonwalked to the end zone. The Arendelle Raiders weren't chasing me down. The number one symbolized nothing for the Woodlands Rams, who dwelled as far as possible from top spot in the standings. No wins, fewest points scored, most points allowed. But if we played mistake-free defense after this touchdown, it could represent our win total that season. I didn't consider it in the moment. I just felt like a winner as I dashed past the Arendelle's bench, so I gave them the index finger. When I crossed the goal line, I expected elation but felt relief satisfaction at the payoff for hard work. I paused in the end zone, my back to the field, spread my arms and bathed in the sensation. I tilted my head back and gazed at the sky and raised my finger once more. P-C-T-R-O-Y. Six points for you, Dad. In a win, too, finally. I pivoted to face the field and the setting sun, which turned the blue sky orange in the distance. In a few minutes, it would duck behind the hulking police station that stood on the other side of Aaron Mills Parkway at the corner of Dundas, at the corner of Dundas, but seemed to loom over the whole neighborhood. And I saw the bright yellow penalty flag lying crumpled <laughs> in the grass near midfield. Knew what it meant even before I saw Kevin and Don begging the referee to change his mind, or the guys on Arendelle's bench smiling and high-fiving. Holding. Offense. 10-yard penalty from the spot of the foul. The referee stood 50 yards upfield and signaled for another official to bring him the ball. Woodlands Rams, losing habits. I sighed and shook my head and started a slow jog back to the huddle. Oh, man. Morgan Campbell, thank you so much. The book is My Fighting Family 
yes. borders and bloodlines and the battles that made us uh, get this book at your favorite local bookstore. Get it online. Uh, I believe there's also an audio version. Yes. And anywhere you get it online, uh, leave a five-star review just to show the uh, algorithm what's what. You know how it is. There you go. Um, one last question, Morgan. Yes. Who do you guard in the Super Bowl? Uh, I think Kansas City. Um, I th their defense is very good. Their defense should be able to slow down. Look, if they can slow down Lamar Jackson, they can slow down Brock Purdy and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the 49ers. And Patrick Mahomes is too good. And it's not just a matter of uh, being clutch. It's the fact that he is that good. So it's not a matter of him just simply turning it on for big games. Like to turn it on, there has to be something to turn on. Yeah. It's that his skill level and his preparation are that high and that thorough. That he's able to do, thing, do things like this and elevate players who like aren't that not, I'm not going to say aren't that good, but he's a superstar, and a lot of his supporting cast are not superstars. But here's Marquez Valdez-Scantling making a big play because Patrick Mahomes is able to make this stuff happen. And so I think Kansas City is going to wind up being a little bit too much for uh, San Francisco. I think I think so as well. Here's hoping for a good game next weekend. Yes, I'm actually like I'm less excited about this matchup than I would have been about Detroit versus Baltimore. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Patrick Mahomes is a, is, a, is a master, and I'm pretty sure Taylor Swift is going to make that 12-hour flight and get to Legion Stadium <laughs> on time. Legion Stadium is not that far from the airport. It's a yeah. quick drive across Las Vegas Boulevard, so I think they can make it work. All righty. So you know the Swifties are going to tune in. There you go. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much for your time. Again, congrats uh, right. on the book, and... Uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, to reading more of your stuff. All right, anytime, Kareem. All right, man. Take All care, right. Morgan. Take it easy. Talk to you soon. All righty. Ciao. Bye now.